This is special coverage of the war in Ukraine. We are sifting through the maze of online articles and misinformation to bring you up-to-date coverage on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, clear, concise, and ad-free. This is Unfuck Ukraine, March 3rd, 2022. Yesterday, March 2nd, we reported uncertainty as to the fate of Port City Kherson, a strategic location that would create a land link between ports and Russian-backed separatists on the Black Sea on the west, two ports in Russian-held Crimea and Russian-backed separatists in the Donbass region on the Sea of Azov to the east. The Sea of Azov is currently under Russian control. Kherson's mayor Igor Kolokhayev reported the city had been taken, but conflicting information from President Zelensky suggested Ukrainian resistance was ongoing. Today the picture is clear. Russian troops have taken control of Kherson, Mayor Kolokhayev confirming Russian officers, including the force commander, had entered the hall with the intention of setting up a military administration within. Estimates of Ukrainian soldiers and civilian casualties over the siege of Kherson have topped 300, but a final toll is yet unknown. Power outages and food and water shortages are being reported in Kherson. Multiple news outlets are reporting Ukrainian utilities workers attempting to restore power and water have been targeted by snipers. Mayor Kolokhayev successfully negotiated for the Ukrainian flag to remain flying above the city hall, agreeing to curfews and limiting mobility around the city. Russian military personnel have established a curfew of 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. and are restricting entrance to the city to vehicles carrying basic necessities. Russian forces have also limited public gatherings to no more than two people. Said Mayor Kolokhayev in a Facebook post, quote, So far, this is how it is. Ukrainian flag above us. And to keep it the same, these requirements must be met. I have nothing else to offer yet. End quote. These reports back up the claim from spokesperson for the Russian Defense Ministry Igor Konashenkov that the regional center of Kherson is under full control. Moving east to major port city Mariupol, where Russian ground and naval forces have begun to surround the city, fears of an amphibious assault on the already battered city are growing. Mariupol City Council reports Russian forces, quote, constantly and deliberately shelling vital civilian infrastructure, end quote, leaving citizens without power, water, heat, and preventing both evacuation and the arrival of basic necessities and cut off from food supplies. Mariupol City Council likens the assault to the assault on Leningrad by Nazi forces who use similar tactics to those seen in Mariupol today. Mariupol City Council called the brutal attack, quote, genocide of the Ukrainian people, end quote. Mariupol mayor told the Interfax news agency, quote, we cannot take our wounded from the streets, from houses and apartments today, since the shelling does not stop, end quote. In the Northeast, Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, remains under heavy attack by Russian forces, shattered buildings all around the city, flames leaping endlessly into the sky. One of President Zelensky's top advisors, Alexei Arostovich, echoed the sentiments of the Mariupol City Council, likening the assault on Kharkiv to the assault on Leningrad in the Second World War. Arostovich also claimed several Russian planes had been shot down over Kharkiv. Total counts, though, have not been verified. The five-story regional police building in Kharkiv has been struck hard, its roof blown off, and its top floor in flames. Ukraine's State Emergency Service reports intelligence headquarters, a university building, residential buildings, and at least three schools are among the countless structures destroyed in the ongoing bombing. Footage taken by citizens in Kharkiv in the early morning hours before air raid sirens alarm suggests that residential areas are not collateral damage, but the focus of targeted Russian bombings. In an interview with Kharkiv resident Maria Avdiva, a clear picture of the chaos unfolds. Russian forces, unable to reach the center of Kharkiv, 
have been pushed back to smaller towns and villages on the outskirts. Avdiva credits the fierce fighting of Kharkiv citizens, the Ukrainian military, and territorial defense units for keeping Russian forces at bay. But being pushed to the outskirts raises more issues. Russian troops have now taken cover in residential villages, making Ukrainian counterstrikes impossible due to the likelihood of civilian casualties. Avdiva told WBUR Boston that the Russian forces are, quote, hiding behind the Ukrainian civilian population, end quote. Maria Avdiva's posts on Twitter have been garnering thousands of views. A post on March 2nd juxtaposed two images, one of a bombed residential neighborhood in Aleppo, Syria, the other in her hometown, Kharkiv. Two cities, nearly a thousand miles apart and separated by the Black Sea, may as well be on neighboring streets. Such is the nature of war, is now and always will be. The total destruction of local culture, the displacement of civilians, countless deaths that serve no purpose. War leaves every street the same, covered in soot and blood and fire. In Ukraine's capital, Kiev, has been anticipating the arrival of a Russian convoy of tanks, armored vehicles, and artillery that has been en route for several days, but has been apparently stalled by prolonged attacks and barricades by the Ukrainian military as well as citizens. Widely reported as 40 miles long, the convoy has been stranded 19 miles away from the capital for the past three days. Aside from Ukrainian resistance, the convoy has experienced numerous mechanical breakdowns and congestion, resulting in a short supply of food and fuel. In addition to poor morale, sitting in a 40-mile-long traffic jam exposes Russian troops to artillery fire and drone attacks. Images released by Maxar Technologies that show the convoy of hundreds of Russian military vehicles indicate the convoy entered the country from the north, most likely from Ukrainian's northern border at Belarus. Belarus has also come under heavy scrutiny and a sweeping round of strict sanctions for its support of the Russian invasion. Belarus's sovereign bonds have collapsed following EU sanctions, their value taking from 87 cents on the dollar before Russia's invasion down to just 14 cents now. Canada has removed Belarus and Russia's trade status, and Belarus has seen export restrictions on oil, as well as tech products and software that could make their way into Russia through Belarus. Aerial imagery tells a major part of Russia's war against Ukraine, as it involves Belarus. Without prior long-term support from Belarus, Russia would have been unable to amass the quantity of vehicles and armaments necessary to create the massive convoy that is now bogged down. From East Belarus in Brest to West Belarus in Gomel, aerial photographs show a steady buildup of Russia's land and air forces in the preceding days and weeks leading up to the invasion. A pontoon bridge was identified via Maxar Technologies around February 15th, showing that the bridge crossed the Pripyat River in southern Belarus, only four kilometers from the Ukrainian border. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has been in power in Belarus for nearly 30 years. His win in 2020's presidential election was widely considered fraudulent, with Lukashenko receiving 80% of the vote. Following that election, hundreds of thousands of Belarusians protested, and Lukashenko's government received both financial and military assistance to quell the nationwide protest. This assistance came from Russia. Due to Lukashenko's crackdown on dissent, some 100,000 to 200,000 Belarusians have abandoned their home for neighboring countries and Ukraine. Belarus also shares borders with Lithuania and Latvia, which Ukrainian President Zelensky believes will be future targets of Russia's aggression if Ukraine falls. Estonia, locked between Russia and Latvia, may be on Putin's radar as well.
At the end of a second round of peace talks today, March 3rd, between Kiev and Moscow, Ukraine and Russia have tentatively agreed to ceasefires in certain areas to allow for humanitarian aid, as well as opening up evacuation routes for citizens. Both sides agreed that the delivery of medicines and foods to areas hardest hit by the fighting was a necessity. At the same time, Putin has publicly stated that the Russian military operation is going exactly according to plan. Economic sanctions have hit Russia hard. The exchange rate of the ruble at the beginning of 2022 sat at $1.33 to 100 rubles. Currently, the exchange rate sits at less than one cent per 100 rubles. As of today, eight days into the war in Ukraine, over one million Ukrainian refugees have fled the country, almost matching the number of refugees attempting to reach Europe from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq during the 2015 refugee crisis. With no domestic flights available, Ukrainians have been moving westward, more than half of all refugees heading for Poland, some 130,000 to Hungary, 70,000 to Slovakia, 50,000 to Romania, and almost 100,000 to non-EU Moldova, which is Europe's poorest country. Add to that 350 confirmed refugees who have fled to Belarus in the north. At the Polish border, refugees, mostly women and children, wait up to 60 hours before they can cross the border. Unlike the refugee crisis of 2015, European borders are open wide for Ukrainians moving west. This, along with reports of African and Middle Eastern refugees being denied entry into neighboring countries, strengthens arguments of systemic racism at not only this border, but all Western borders. It has also brought the Ukrainian police force under scrutiny by international media and human rights lawyers. The International Organization of Migration estimates that there are nearly half a million non-white residents in Ukraine, but only about 6,000 have managed to leave. In an interview with the New York Times, Chinegu Mbagu shared that refugees of color were beat with sticks and moved to the back of a mile-long line. Stuck in the cold with no food, water, or place to rest, Mbagu reports suffering from sleep deprivation and hallucinations. Piotr Mueller, spokesman for the Polish Prime Minister, commented March 1st, quote, Poland is letting in everyone coming from Ukraine regardless of nationality, end quote. Piotr Bistrinian, head of the Polish refugee charity Akalini Foundation, added that, quote, the problems were on the Ukrainian side, end quote. Reports from other refugees make up a more complex story, though one that still exhibits systemic racism abroad. Moroccan dental student Taha Dara also told the New York Times that he and two other Moroccans, along with other Africans, were intimidated away from the border by Ukrainian guard firing his rifle into the air. Ukrainian officials told Emmanuel Nwulu, a Nigerian student at Kharkiv National University, that blacks were not allowed on a train that was traveling west to the border. From endless shelling to the looming refugee crisis, the Ukrainian war is an unmitigated cluster of war crimes and human rights violations. From Amnesty International, quote, The invasion of Ukraine has already resulted in indiscriminate strikes on residential areas, medical institutions, social infrastructure, and other civilian objects and infrastructure, and produced civilian deaths and injuries. It has led to mass displacement and destruction of civilian housing. In the fighting in Donetsk and Luhansk, particularly in 2014 to 2015, there have been extrajudicial executions, torture and other ill treatment, enforced disappearances, and unlawful deprivation of liberty. End quote. Attention has been slowly but steadily gaining on Putin's claims of, quote, denazification, as more information about Ukraine's Azov battalion makes its way to news outlets. We scraped it, we verified it, so let's jump into it. If you haven't heard, and it's totally possible because information is all over the place, 
There is a volunteer battalion of far-right Ukrainian nationalists that have been fighting in the Donbass region since 2014, and they were highly praised by then-President Volodymyr Poroshenko. They are the Azov Battalion, a right-wing extremist neo-Nazi unit of the National Guard of Ukraine. When founded in 2014, they were solely volunteer battalion and were responsible for recapturing the port city Mariupol from pro-Russian separatists, the same port city that is today surrounded by Russia's sea and land forces. So visible was the group that in 2018, Congress added a provision in its spending bill that explicitly barred the U.S. from arming the Azov Battalion in its fight against the Russian separatists. Then, in 2019, in the United States, Max Rose, Democratic representative from New York and chair of the Counterterrorism Subcommittee, submitted a letter to the U.S. State Department signed by 39 members of Congress urging the State Department to designate the Azov Battalion, along with National Action in the U.K. and the Nordic Resistance Movement, as terrorist organizations. A 2019 comprehensive report by the Sufan Center, a nonprofit research group that focuses on counterterrorism, violent extremism, among other topics, detailed the extent to which the Azov Battalion was networking in Europe. In 2018, they distributed German language flyers inviting audience members at a concert to, quote, join the ranks of the best, end quote. A U.S. Army officer in 2018 was arrested after distributing bomb making instructions online and planning to travel to join the Azov group in Ukraine. That same year, American Greg Johnson, editor-in-chief of the white nationalist journal Courier Currents Publishing, traveled to Ukraine to attend a series of events held by the National Corps, that's the street-level organization, of the Azov Battalion. Listen, international politics is convoluted when you get down to this level of detail. It's all levels of fucked up. But this is only half the story. Putin's assertion that part of his goal with the invasion of Ukraine is denazification may in fact be based on the very real existence and persistence of the Azov Battalion, which has since been folded into regular units of the Ukrainian armed forces. Yes, they have been. The battalion has been upgraded to a regiment and is officially called, quote, Special Operations Detachment, end quote. There should be no dispute over this fact in any media. We can even get grittier with the Sufan Center's report, namely that allegations have surfaced that the Azov Battalion trains and indoctrinates children as young as nine years old. However, as with Putin's assertion that Ukraine and the U.S. broke with assurances that NATO would not move eastward, Putin and those on the far right who side with Putin when they learn of the Azov Battalion, this is a case of Putin using a truth to tell a lie. As I mentioned before, the Azov Battalion has been instrumental in reclaiming Mariupol from Russian-backed separatists, and that comes with a lot of negatives attached to the Azov Battalion. But for Putin, who supports those separatists in the Donbass region, their loss of control could not have been welcome. So what is Putin's reputation as far as the denazification of Russia? It is not good, read non-existent. Scratch that. Putin's official stance is to support white supremacist movements where it serves him. For example, with paramilitary groups, he supports them as long as they use vague language as opposed to blatant racism, language that focuses on fighting societal collapse, fighting multiculturalism, reinforcing, quote, traditional values. The Russian Imperial Movement, RIM, and its Imperial Legion Volunteer Unit act in much the same way as the Azov Battalion. They are a far-right neo-Nazi group that attract and train foreign fighters in the same way that the Azov Battalion does. 
Not only that, but the modestly sized Russian imperial movement has attracted similar attention from American white supremacy extremists. As reported by the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights in 2015 in St. Petersburg, the International Russian Conservative Forum hosted such notable American white supremacists as Sam Dixon, an attorney who arranged for Holocaust deniers to speak in his Georgia hometown, and Jared Taylor, editor of American Renaissance, which is the same white nationalist publication to which Trump senior policy advisor Stephen Miller cited as inspiration. Dixon, at his conference, seemed to praise Putin's own predilection toward white supremacy, apparently praising Putin for encouraging higher birth rates in the West, contrasting his policy with that of the U.S., which he views as white replacement. This is not the extent of Putin's white supremacy problem. Money flows directly out of Russia and into the bank accounts of white nationalist or right extremist groups. Marine Le Pen, leader of France's far-right national rally, received 11 million euros in the form of loans from Russian banks after Le Pen came out in support of the Russian annexation of Crimea. Heinz Christian Strasia, later of the Austrian far-right Freedom Party, negotiated the exchange of public contracts for Russian financial campaign support. In 2019, a recording between Italian and Russian officials surfaced that planned for the exchange of Russian oil money into Italy's League Party, another far-right extremist party. Russia has, as a matter of public record, as Putin cannot control information once it leaves Russia, they have a public record of financing politicians and policy from the far right. So, does a white supremacist group have a permanent position in the Ukrainian military? Yes, and that is horrible. Has Russia funneled money into white supremacist groups? Yes, and again, horrible. Does Putin himself benefit from the willingness of white supremacist groups to fight on his behalf and also take his money? Yes, and that is also horrible. The Ukrainian Nazi problem is part of a disturbing global trend of the rise of white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups as they become integrated into the mainstream. It is such a pervasive issue that one of America's own congresswomen, Marjorie Taylor Greene, spoke at the America First Political Action Committee, a white supremacist organization, and was introduced, get this, by Nick Fuentes, who said, quote, they say Putin is Hitler, like that's a bad thing, end quote. Yeah. Ukraine's Nazi problem is America's Nazi problem is the world's Nazi problem. So where does that leave us? I refer you to yesterday's episode. Ukrainian citizens are indeed fighting and dying amid the endless shelling by Russian forces. The fact is that the Azov Battalion is isolated to Mariupol and the Sea of Azov, which Putin has surrounded. If Putin's goal was to denazify Ukraine, then he has successfully done so by capturing Mariupol. But the shelling and bombing continues. For the millions of Ukrainians who are not neo-Nazis or white supremacists, the Azov Battalion in Mariupol has little to no consequence. 2,500 troops, that's the size of the Azov Battalion, take out the Nazis and leave Ukraine. The eastward expansion of NATO and denazification are examples of multidimensional chess that the far right so religiously believed Trump was playing with the whole world. But it was never Trump playing that game. Putin is the master of it. He has said what is true to peddle a lie, that his aggression in Ukraine is justified. Perhaps in Putin's mind, it is all justified. But to Ukraine, it's just death. 
This is Unfuck the Poor's reporting on the war in Ukraine for March 3rd, 2022. We'll continue to scrape the web for perspective and comprehensive reporting, and we'll do it ad-free. Thanks for listening.